It's been a while since we looked over the road at life and health insurance, so I'm delighted that we've had a chance to interview Anushka Pacheva from Vitality for this week's episode. And it's Robin Mertens back in the interviewer's chair this week. Well, welcome back to you. And if it is your first time, great you found us. I'm Matthew Grant, one of the two partners at Instec London, along with Robin Mertens. Now, no surprise, Robin and Anushka are talking about the role of data in insurance, and in particular, how this can be used for risk selection and risk management, but also, of course, the many challenges that come when using data for life and health insurance. Well, no need for me to hang around, time for me to get out of the way. And if you want to find out what we're up to, you'll find most of what you need on the website www.instec.london. Hello, everybody. It's Instec London podcast time again. And I've got with me today Anushka Pachava, who is the Deputy Chief Medical Officer at Vitality. Welcome, Anushka. Hi, Robin. Great to be with you. Well, thank you for joining us. I'm looking forward to this because you have an extraordinarily interesting CV that I um, intend to explore with you further. You had a sort of weird pivot some way halfway through your career. That's where I'd like to start. You have an extraordinary academic background where you did um, surgery at Cambridge, on to Harvard, Next thing I know, you're at the Royal College of Radiology. And then, God help you, you end up in insurance. Uh, Verily, Aetna, Vitality. Uh, what happened there? Why, why suddenly insurance? I left medicine on a whim. Um, I actually quit live on national ITV news because of the doctors' protests and the fact that at the time, I felt that the new new working hours that were introduced were, were unsafe for, for medics but also for the patients. And I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. I just I just sort of left and thought I, I, there must be something out there. I did a stint in strategy consulting, working um, with Big Pharma, looking at disease and portfolio strategies in, in particular, and sort of fell into insurance because of my time in the States and understanding that in, in America, it's a multi-payer environment and a very competitive environment. Um, I, knew, I knew the brand Aetna. And uh, I was headhunted for a role at Aetna and, and it had some really cool words in it, like population health. And it, it attracted me to, to, to go over to what people would say was the, was the dark side. So the main reason I went into insurance is because I re- realized that insurers have access to such vast volumes of data. And they were so far ahead compared to health systems like the NHS in using that data and, and applying analytics and, and business intelligence to do something cool with that data, be it stratified populations or targeted disease interventions or even customer profiling. And for me, data was always seen as like the game changing drug. Do you feel yourself as like a, like a medic who's in insurance or an insurer who's, who's a past medic? I feel like neither, actually. Um, I feel like a strategist who is working at a forward thinking um, business that happens to be in the financial services sector. I still am a medic. Um, I'm still registered at the GMC. I still occasionally dabble with looking at my medical textbooks to look up particular conditions or, or you know, with, with long COVID and, and some new syndromes coming um, into the market and into our terminology, our everyday terminology. I've been probably Googling and, and looking at research papers a lot more than ever before. And I don't think you ever are not a doctor. So you're currently the Deputy Chief Medical Officer at Vitality. Uh, you've been there for, for all of four months now. What What is that job? What's the role involved? What do you do day to day? It's a very diverse role. 
Uh, my day-to-day involves looking after four of our teams at Vitality, the medical underwriting team, the medical affairs team, the Vitality care team, and our primary care services. And in essence, that the role is looking after um, everything from the healthcare services and, and provisions we offer our members to claims um, and to designing new new um, services and, and innovations. And particularly with the catalyst that COVID has offered in, in the digital healthcare space, looking at how we potentiate our, our healthcare models to, to better suit and, and deliver on, on customer needs. We're a very customer-focused organization. It's customer, 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 as we say internally. And it's, it's important to us that um, we stay um, in, in that space where we empower our, our members and, and deliver for our customers. So I'm intrigued to know from your unique perspective, you think the pandemic has really changed the way that healthcare is being provided by insurers. I'm, I'm asking this because it was a bit of a shock to, to healthcare providers. There was a lot to do in a short period of time. There's a lot of digital engagement to be uh, sorted out in a kind of in a, in a kind of lockdown world. Are things fundamentally changing towards digital engagement and a digital model, or is it what we at Instech London still call digital lipstick on a legacy pig? You know, is it a few nice things around the fringe to make the customer engagement a little easier? Pre-COVID, we were already on this journey. I think customers were thrilled by convenience and access in banking, in e-commerce. As a result of customers being thrilled by that, other sectors started looking to to digital more openly to see what they could do with that customer business interface. Healthcare always held back. So we did have the likes of digital healthcare coming to play across the world. And we had a lot of telemedicine providers offering primary care services. But what COVID has done is is make those services mandatory. And they made it mandatory from, from two reasons. One, how many people actually want to go sit in a physical clinic and be in the same environment as other people who might be coughing and splurging? And in addition to that, how many people want to actually leave their house in, in this environment where we were all thrown into lockdown and, and almost scared into what, what could come from COVID-19? That made it mandatory for, for healthcare systems to deliver digital consultations. And when it became mandatory almost overnight, healthcare caught up and caught up very quickly and, and deployed systems that were safe and secure and consumers can access very, very quickly. And then businesses are accepting that they aren't going to be completely fully integrous the first time around, that they'll be scrapping mistakes, they'll have to iterate their models um, and, and such like, so at least with their interface with, with customers and, and patients. Where I think we're lacking still, Robin, is I think the internal transformation it takes to deliver it. And I go back to your lipstick on a pig analogy where you mentioned legacy systems. You know, if we go really, really bold and talk about digital technologies such as distributed ledger technologies, which is the underlying technology for, for cryptocurrency, with legacy infrastructure in place, it's very, very difficult to really mold to the new infrastructures. We've caught up on the external area. Uh, the external facing bits, we haven't caught up in healthcare on the internal facing bits. I'm going to ask you uh, um, a related question to do with kind of data and engagement. We all know about Vitality and they're very well known for their rewards, lifestyle based approach to insurance. How far is that going to get taken, not by Vitality particularly, but by the industry as a whole? You know, are those things marketing and, and sort of risk selection or 
Are we on our way to a regular, meaningful, digital engagement with customers that will sort of profoundly change the overall model, do you think? That's a question that's quite difficult to answer, Robin. I think the reason being is within insurance as a, as a sector, there's so many broad groups. So if we think about car insurance, we are already on that journey to personalization and we are able to offer risk premiums with, with dashboard cameras and get better analytics and more holistic analytics on a person's behavior and tailor our pricing according to that. If we go into home insurance, there's a lot of businesses, again, who offer to, with home surveillance cameras, et cetera, offer to reduce your premiums. Equally for accidents um, insurance and personal effects insurance, there are similar products. And then we go into healthcare, and it seems that there are very few products that tailored premium. And the reason they're being, Robin, is I think it's against the grain of principle of, of how humans interact with their health data. People hold health data so close to their heart. We don't like to disclose health data. And, and a real great example of this is test and trace, which if you actually look at the figures of how many people have downloaded it and use it, very, very few people have actually really downloaded it and use it and don't delete it on a regular basis, etc. The, the main reason being is people just don't feel confident that that data is not being uh, abused and, and misused. So you raise a really interesting question. How do we use data effectively? How do we increase permissions for data? How do we bring customers on our journey and give them the confidence that their data will never be used against them and, and for malintent? It's a battle that a lot of people are fighting. It's one that I feel customers don't see the, the actual benefit of just yet. In, in that data sharing and how much they share. One of the best stories I've heard in the last weeks is, is Alan, the, the French health insurer, where because they have transparency of data between themselves and the customers and for a variety of other reasons, they were able to play, I think it was 80% or north of 80% of their claims within three minutes, which is a fantastic story for customer experience. There's a lot spoken about the need to fundamentally change the insurance uh, appraisal and engagement model to make it easier to bake it into people's lives uh, to to kind of stop making it a grudge purchase but to do that hasn't the consumer got to agree to share a lot of data where do you stand on that you know is it right that people again are really prepared to share lots of data for a better way of buying insurance or are they still very circumspect about their data, in which case they're going to have to accept that they're going to have to go the long way around for insurance? The question back I have is, how much of the data we share do we know we're sharing? So the first level I'd ask is, if you're unconsciously sharing your data, which a lot of, a lot of us are online, be it through social media or interactions or even our calendar bookings, where we're unconsciously saying, you know, what we're doing at that time, where, how, with who – then is it really that much of an issue to share other data with insurers insurers about ourselves? I think the challenge comes is when you're consciously asked to share your data, that normally triggers you know, psychological discomfort in, in individuals, and, and particularly with individuals who, let's call it out for what it is, Robin. You know, the insurance sector is, is as a whole seen as the dark side and, and someone who you pay premiums for. And when you need something from them, they're not always there to deliver it necessarily. And, and it makes they make it unnecessarily complicated so they don't have to pay uh, you the money that, that you uh, believe you're owed. And I think that's why people are a little bit more cynical with, with sharing insurance data. That being said, I think 
people are becoming more and more open to, to data sharing. And I think particularly when it's of benefit to them. So if we look at the model where, you know, you'll put a dashboard on your car and let them monitor your movements for, for nine months and how you drive and where you're driving and, and, and such likes in order to get a lower premium, people seem, seem okay with that. For me, there's two things we need to do. Insurers need to be aware of, of their reputations and potentially do things to change that and create better and more integrated and easier customer experiences. So they're seen more as a partner to a customer rather than, um, you know, an insurer. And equally, customers need to educate themselves around how that data is used and whether or not a holistic data set um, will offer them benefits long term with with insurance. Car is is probably the most facetious example. Um, I think home people are a little bit more concerned about letting cameras into their house and being monitored at home, you know, a big brother way. And then I think health is is the one that people are the most concerned about because, you know, they don't want you finding out something about them that they don't know and, and potentially using that against them either in terms of employment or in terms of treatments or in terms of insurance premiums. This is sort of, you know, real uh, emerging trend, I think. Is, are there potentially interesting models around incentivizing people to share their data, you know, reward-based sharing? The more, the more you share, the more rewards you might get. I don't know if you watched Dragon's Den the other day, but they all jumped on the back of a, of a, of a model that was doing exactly that. Is, is that something health, healthcare ins- insurers would embrace? I definitely think so, Robin. I know, um, you know, we've got Bitcoin and Litecoin and other coins. Um, and it's a conversation I often have with my partner at home and who's going to invent the health coin. There was a, a business called Sweatcoin where it wasn't, it wasn't a cryptocurrency, but you, through activities, you got more rewards and the more activities you did, you got more, you know, online currency and that allowed you to purchase items online. So I, I definitely think incentivizing people towards healthy behaviors and, and sharing of data is a huge opportunity. And if we talk about smart contracts and, and sharing of genetic data to help the discovery of new drugs or to help, um, you know, identifying rare diseases or to help those who are suffering with rare cancers, you know, if you had a, a a registry of everyone's genetic data, you could better match donors, for example. And so I think there's a huge opportunity there. The challenge is is who cracks it first and, and how they crack it. And and for me, I've never really been able to understand whether it should be government or public sector or whether it should be private sector. And I think there's there's pros and cons to both. I'd say government's the best place and potentially more trusted to launch something like that. But then I'd always say private sector have better models, better delivery mechanisms and better connections, uh, better infrastructure. There's a huge opportunity. It's just who does it first and, and where they sit in, in within you know the environment. We have fond memories of Oleg from Sweatcoin. I think he pitched at the third ever Instech London event in 2016, which we held at the Gherkin. Before we worry about sort of... Um, loyalty schemes for sharing your data, that there's a tougher nut to crack, which is the sort of centralization, um, unified medical history, um, get on the bandwagon like the Estonians and, and try and fix it for the UK, get the ability to kind of give access to a single joined up version of someone's medical history. 
Are we getting anywhere with that? Is that going to happen in my lifetime? What, what do you think? We've got somewhere with it of late. And, and although we don't have a fully joined up integrated healthcare system that has fluidity of healthcare records across social and healthcare, which, which I think is the panacea, we do have better interoperability now within our healthcare system than, than, than ever before. I think electronic health records and having access to, you know, everything in, in one place is, is hugely valuable and hugely promising. It's promising on, on all sides of the, of the coin, Robin. If you think about it from a, from a government perspective, they can make better commissioning decisions if they have access to everyone's data. And, and, you know, of course, there'll be an element of consent and, and us granting permissions for them to have that. But if you knew that, that meant you'd have better services that, that met your healthcare needs and, and your, your borough and, and your geography, I can't see why people wouldn't want that. There's a little bit of a, a concern that having too much data, not knowing what you do with it, um, could be more harmful than good. And I think one of those cases are around genetic data, Robin, because your genetic data, even though you know you might have a predisposition, for example, to, to develop breast cancer, it doesn't necessarily mean you do develop breast cancer. And if you didn't have the understanding behind you know, your risk levels um, and, and how much of your genetic data is actually displayed in your actions and, and in, in your lifespan, I think you could cause more psychological harm than good. And you could you could actually cause more harm to, to an individual and, and a health system by having open access to, to everyone's genetic data. I hope it happens in your, your lifetime, Robin. You know, even if we're talking about incentivizing people for data sharing, it would be so much easier if our records were, were on the system. I'll give you my view on um, the sharing of genetic data. I was a very early user of 23andMe, and I think in my case it created uh, health issues way above uh, what I would have had if I hadn't ever had the information, which is created by the fact that I have 0.6% Neanderthal uh, in my DNA. And, and at the time of taking it, I had not the slightest idea that Homo sapiens and, and, and Neanderthal interbred at any stage, but there we are. My wife says I knew all along because you, 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 the way you carry your arms, you look like an ape. Uh, <laughs> that's my, that's my Neanderthal. You mentioned the UN earlier. Uh, I'm sort of slightly intrigued by that. How does a person end up being a, a health advisor to the UN? Do they, do they tap you up or do you, you apply? How does it work? I'm going to use Gladwell's example of mavens and connectors. I knew a maven who was able to connect me in. I leveraged that, that individual had a couple of conversations around, particularly around blockchain, because there was a group of us who were very excited and, and thinking about blockchain, but not in terms of cryptocurrency and how much money we can make, more along the lines of how how can we use this in healthcare to allow healthcare records being transferred, to allow smart contracting, to allow tokenization. And we had a couple of interesting chats and conversations, and the individual mentioned that they knew someone who knew someone at, at the UN and would, would I be interested in, in, in an expert advisory role there? And I said yes. I said oh yes on the basis of, of the fact that my, my other half has seven or I think it's seven. It's either seven or nine. I always get this wrong. But UN peacekeeping medals from his, from his time in service. And I wanted to have a similar line on my CV. So uh, it's, it's turned out to be a fantastic opportunity. And, and you mentioned Estonia earlier. We've, we've had the opportunity to work and, and interview um, some of the team that have been involved with launching blockchain in, in Estonia as, as part of some research work we've done at the UN. And, and I think that's, that's really opened up some different viewpoints to, to the ones I held before that role. If they're looking for an inshore tech advisor, you know, feel free to throw my hat in the ring. 
Your CV also says that I see you're sort of top women in tech 2020. Uh, it got me to thinking whether or not you're a sort of gender diversity campaigner. You're in a predominantly uh, male world. Uh, where do you stand on all of that? I think in, in this today's day and age, diversity and inclusion should be the norm. Um, looking for diversity of thought, diversity of experience, diversity of gender, race, culture is, is how we learn and grow and, and develop as, as a society. So I am, I definitely am someone who champions that and, and more than champion it, I'm very excited by it. With regards to the, the woman in title, I think this is something I'm not really sure of. I grew up with an older brother who's 11 months older and for one of a better phrase is my best friend, but also my mentor and the only person I put on a pedestal. And I look up to him and I want to embody who he is and his values. And the main reason I want to do that is he always challenged my parents and, and our grandparents back to treat me equally as even though I was, you know, a, a, a girl, an Indian girl growing up and my father's background is very conservative. And so for me, that that story just really shows me that it should be women championing women. It should be men championing women. It should be men championing men. We shouldn't be so against gender neutrality when we develop services and products and, and propositions and have conversations. And the women in category really, I think, irritates me because I see a lot of window dressing. There are organizations that have women in X category just so that the main category they can award to a man. That worries me because that's not what it's about. I think women should be viewed equally. All genders should be viewed equally. And I would like to be seen as someone who can compete and be awarded the same award, regardless of whether I was being judged against women, men or anyone else. And um, so I think we have to have an equal playing field. Um, and I think men need to be brought into the women in X groups um, and the women in X conversations and create the competition that will reward everyone for capability over gender. I'm grateful for my Women in Tech Award. And I have I have experienced very male dominated environments from surgery to, to insurance today. But I feel like I've always been able to challenge myself to compete equally across genders. And I, I really want to empower more, more young women today to do so and, and not, you know, feel like they can't. I've really enjoyed this. And, and, uh, and uh, but I, I often end these things with one question because I. With people like you, I have no idea how much you, you, you manage to do so much in an average day. You've got a job, you, you mentor, you advise the UN. Do you ever snuggle up with a good book and, you know, have a glass of wine and, and turn off? Or are you, how, I mean, how do you manage a life this busy? I definitely snuggle up with a good book. Um, probably far too often, Robin, and it's probably, um, normally some, absolutely crazy psychological crime thriller or an equally bad rom-com instead of my MBA textbook because I'm pursuing an executive MBA at the moment and probably should be studying. How do I do so much? I think it's through real excitement of learning that I'm able to do so much. I feel that naturally I'm, I'm a curious individual and I, I ask the question why probably um, more often than I, than I should and it, I'm sure it irritates those around me. 
I like discovering new things, new new spaces and 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 new areas and perspectives that I that I don't know of. Uh, work long hours and 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 then travel a lot <laughs> when we were able to. Um, and I'm very very lucky, I think, um, to have a, a very supportive partner that is equally as hardworking and, and equally as adventurous. So you know we will um, balance with you know ten days of non-stop work on studying and assignments with you know uh, an adventure so I think it's all about balance I think you've got to follow your heart with everything you do um I have a card that my third grade teacher gave me um, when we finished third grade and it says do what you love and the rest will come and I've managed to keep that with me from from moving back from Saudi Arabia into boarding school from moving to boarding school into you know um a sixth form at home from moving at home to three different universities and then three homes after that. And I've always kept that card. And I think that that is that is how I managed to do as much as I do is because I do I do what I love. You're a great example. We often talk at Interstate London about the need for curiosity. You are um, a shining example of what can be achieved if you are permanently curious. Anushka, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I, I think Vitality are very lucky to have you. Um, I hope you'll be a regular um, engager with with everything we do at Instech London. And, and in the meantime, you know, good luck with everything, and we'll chat again soon. Thanks, Robin, for having me. As always, great to speak to you, and I'm really looking forward to, to seeing you at the next Instech, and hopefully it will be face to face. We'll see you at the Instech London summer party. Can't wait, Robin. Make sure you bring the sunshine, though. I will. Bye bye. Thanks, Robin. Bye bye. Well, as always, you'll find the written interview on our website, London, along with our past and future reports, insights, who our members are, events, and a whole lot more. All things being well, we should be back doing face-to-face events this summer, maybe even as soon as July. Details to follow soon.